I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. To get to the truth of the matter on this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Seth Jones. Seth is the former director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the RAND Corporation. He also served as representative for the Commander U.S. Special Ops to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. He is now the Harold Brown Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Dr. Jones, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. You put out a report in August which said that the Saudi infrastructure was increasingly vulnerable to an attack from uh, Iran, and it sort of happened exactly the way you said it would. What do we make of this right now? Tell us what this is all about. Well, I think there's a political dimension to it first and foremost, which is uh, Iran has been backed into a corner and views itself as being backed into a corner. It's been on the receiving end of punishing sanctions by the United States. Its GDP, uh, according to IMF estimates, International Monetary Fund estimates, uh, will be roughly negative 5% real GDP growth this year because of the sanctions. Inflation rate is up 40 to 50% this year. Um, so as part, and there are no, there's at this point, no serious political dialogue on relief of those sanctions. So I think put in that position, what the Iranians are doing is making noise. And uh, some of that is uh, to get a political dialogue on relief of the sanctions. Part of it may also be the Iranians are assuming that if they're suffering right now, that they might as well make others suffer along the way. Yeah, I was going to say, though, this isn't exactly a cry for help. No, this is not just a cry. This is also going on the offense right now. Yeah. And so the use of projectiles, whether it was Iran directly or indirectly through partners or proxies, uh, this has a punishing impact. I think they wanted to send a very clear message in this case to the Saudis and the oil infrastructure in particular uh, that they can inflict pain just like the West can on the Iranian economy. Well, was this aimed at us? Was this a message to us? I think it was it was in part absolutely a message aimed at us that the Saudis are enemies of the Iranians and there has been significant competition and conflict, including in places like Yemen. So this may have been partly uh, aimed at the Saudis, but it was aimed at us. I think the Iranians are smart enough to understand if they had taken a military action, either directly or indirectly, at us. Uh, at U.S. maritime vessels, U.S. bases in the region, we would have responded almost certainly with military force. If you hit the Saudis and not us, well, then that's a debate. Do we respond? Do we let the Saudis respond? How do we respond? Cyber operations? I think that's the, the Iranians recognize that the, the way they did this and the target they, they, uh, they hit, the Saudis, made the response for the U.S. much more complicated, but they got the message across. Well, it's really challenging, too, because it's, it's infrastructure. It's not people, as you said, and it's Saudi Arabia. It's not as if they attacked Israel, because if they attacked Israel, they'd have Israel to worry about and they'd have the United States to worry about. 
Yeah, and I think if you look at the uh, re- recent events, including the journalist uh, Khashoggi, the Saudis have been a subject of some controversy in the U.S., including on Capitol Hill. Should we support the Saudis in the war against Yemen? So the Saudis come with some debate within uh, Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. So I think in that sense, how to respond and how to be viewed as supporting the Saudis, I think there certainly will be a line of response in the U.S. if the U.S. responds directly that we are essentially doing the work of the Saudis because it was the Saudis that were targeted. That has some political overtones as well. Are we certain that this was Iran? So what we have seen in terms of evidence so far is that we know uh, projectiles were used to target infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, Ramco infrastructure, including at Apcake. What we know in the region is that if this were the Houthis who have said that they did this, the Houthis uh, missile capabilities and drone capabilities, we know, including there are a range of good UN reports on this, are generally coming from the Iranians. If the Iranians did this directly, then it was likely, then we'll know it was the Iranians. What we don't know right now is where these projectiles came from, how much of these were cruise missiles or drones. Uh, they have the capability uh, both directly and indirectly through the Houthis. So there's, there is a lot of information that we don't know yet. And it's not clear to what degree the Iranians were directly involved if this was a Houthi attack. Well, while we have not directly responded, at least not as yet, uh, we've got a lot of people out there and a lot of military equipment out there. And when I read your report, I was stunned. I had, you know, I knew there's an aircraft carrier out there. I knew that uh, we have some uh, fighters and so forth. Tell us about this U.S. military force that's in this region right now. Well, the U.S. has uh, a range of forces in the region. It recently agreed to send 500 soldiers to Prince Sultan Air Base. Um, It has uh, an Air Force fighter jet squadron, a B-52 bomber strike group. Um, it, it had deployed about a month ago the USS Abraham Lincoln strike group. It's got other assets in the region, Patriot missile batteries. Um, it's got unmanned intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets. Uh, it's got a number of other bases in the region with which it used to fly aircraft. It's got naval stations, including in Bahrain. The, the U.S. has a lot of infrastructure in the region, uh, air, ground, and naval that it uses to conduct day-to-day U.S. Central Command operations. One of the things your report points out is how vulnerable the Saudis are in relation to drinking water. That's 70 percent, is it, of the water there uh, does not come from the ground? The Saudis rely to a considerable extent on uh, on their desalinization plants for purifying water that comes from the sea. So w- what we noted is that there were a, n- a number of facilities, desalination facilities, that if the Iranians were to target, would decimate water supplies in Saudi Arabia, including to the capital, Riyadh. They're very vulnerable to attack, and they would have a major impact on the availability of water which would obviously have a huge humanitarian impact on Saudi society. Those were not hit. What were hit were repairable oil and gas facilities. Targeting a desalination plant would have been much more catastrophic and I think would have probably raised tensions even further. But it should be noted that there are electricity grids, there are desalination plants, there are SCADA electrical systems, that if this conflict ratchets up, 
there are a lot more vulnerable targets in Saudi Arabia and Iran that could increase the tension. Let's go back to who did it for a second. There's actually a theory that this could have been Iran's military without the knowledge of Iran's leadership to try to prevent Iran's leadership from meeting with Donald Trump. Donald Trump said he was open to meeting with the Iranian leaders under the right circumstances. Do you buy that? Um, I think that unless we find evidence that suggests that that was the case, in which case there would be intelligence picked up of debates within the Iranian leadership that would indicate that, diplomats might talk about that. But when Iran operates, it generally operates, especially for such a major strike like this, I think in general, the supreme leader would have almost certainly had to sign off on this action. I mean, this is a major attack. If someone were to act this way in Iran without getting a sign off from the supreme leader, then I, I think that would be especially something that would likely put Iran on the trajectory towards a war. In general, it would be a very costly and probably unlikely mistake that, that someone in Iran would make without the awareness of the supreme leader. Despite what people see on TV, we don't have cameras on all corners of the earth. So we don't know exactly where these missiles came from, exactly what they are. But we do. there has been some reporting based on satellite imagery that shows that there were some pretty precise hits. And there were some very similar hits on targets that show very precise barreling down into the infrastructure. So that suggests long-range missiles, not drones from the Houthis in Yemen, as was originally reported. So we think with some evidence that this had to have been cruise missiles. Yes, or at least that there were cruise missiles were a likely component of the targeting. There have been a number of reports that there were a mixture of projectiles used to target infrastructure. The cruise missiles would give you a lot more precision in those targets. You know, when I uh, was uh, working full-time at CBS News, we had a, a executive producer who later became the president of uh, the CBS Corporation, Howard Stringer. And Howard, when he was producing the evening news, insisted that every story include what we came to call the Stringer paragraph, and that is telling our viewers why this is important to you. Why is this important to America? Well, I think it's important for a couple of reasons, at least to put in context. One is the tensions between the United States and Iran have certainly ratcheted up. In the most recent national defense strategy, the Trump administration highlights its main uh, global and regional competitors as the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and the North Koreans. So the Iranians have been identified as a major competitor of the United States. So I think what this does, this, this ratchets up the tensions, increases the possibility either of outright war or at least an escalation uh, to the current conflict right now. And so that has implications on warfare. Uh, it's got implications on global oil, including the price of oil. So I think for a range of reasons, this should matter to Americans. If the U.S. gets into a war with Iran, Iran has the capabilities to conduct assassinations in other areas of the Middle East. People should remember in the 1980s, the U.S., including U.S. Marines, were on the receiving end of Iranian-linked Hezbollah in Lebanon. The Iranians have targeted Israeli 
and Jewish locations, including in Latin America. And it was not that long ago that the U.S. uh, publicly uh, revealed an Iranian-linked assassination against the Saudi ambassador in Washington at Cafe Milano, of all places. Right up the street. So I think this does have implications for the U.S., including economic ones as well. You know, Bob and I don't go to Cafe Milano unless we're invited to a thing. It's not like, you know, our hangout. I used to go to Cafe Milano until the assassination plot, and then I decided there probably be safe, more low-profile places to go. <laughs> go ahead, Andrew. In line with the Stringer paragraph, you mentioned the world's oil supply. This incident's cut global oil supplies by about 5% so far, and it knocked out Saudi's capability of about more than 50%, which is 5.5 million barrels of daily crude a day. They produce about 11 million barrels of crude a day. How long is it going to take them to get back online? And for Americans, we're going to have some higher oil prices. But what does it really mean for the rest of the world as well? It's not entirely clear how quickly the Saudis are going to be able to get everything up and running. I mean, my understanding is the damage has been somewhat limited, meaning it may take days and and weeks rather than months to get much of of the oil now pumping through uh, various components of uh, facilities like Abcake. For broader global implications, you know, what it may also mean, including for countries like the United States, is to increasingly focus on its own sources of oil, whether it's directly in the U.S. or with neighboring Canada, rather than having to rely on an area, the Middle East, which has been prone to severe conflict. So what it may do is countries may look to the Russians for sources because they've got capabilities along these lines, areas other than the Middle East. Along these same lines, you know, the United States has to be thinking about its options. What do we do? The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is an ally of sorts. And the Saudi Arabians have just been attacked. Trump initially said that the United States is locked and loaded, depending on what we hear from the kingdom. And he's continued to say he's hedged his bets back and forth. And he's saying, um, you know, it kind of depends on what the kingdom tells us they want to do. That's an interesting formulation for a United States president to say it it depends on what the Saudi Arabian kingdom tells us they want to do. But what are really the United States options here towards Iran in this case? Well, there are a couple. One is there would be a direct U.S. response. And that would mean the attack is against Saudi infrastructure, but the U.S. responds. And now it may do it with Saudi Arabia. It could do it by itself. The U.S. has a lot of options in that sense. It's got direct military responses. Uh, we, we know there were options on the table. Uh, the president said so. He called one in particular off. It would have involved, among other things, airstrikes against surface-to-air missile locations on uh, Iranian territory. The U.S. has also conducted offensive cyber operations, including recently against Iran. So there are those kinds of options. The U.S. has also taken down Iranian aircraft, including drones in and around the region. So there are various types of direct responses that the U.S. could take. It could also operate with or largely through partners in the region. So we could see a response where the U.S. provides intelligence to the Saudis and the Saudis conduct a response, a attack against Iranian infrastructure in Yemen, for example. The Iranians have intelligence operator, uh, operatives in Yemen. So there are ways that the, uh, that the Saudis could respond. I think what the U.S. has to be careful about, though, is that the U.S. was not attacked directly in this case. It was a partner. And so 
does it make sense for the U.S. to respond directly if Iran attacked the Saudis? I think that's one of the major questions right now. I noticed in in your report, you you talked about how it was important for us not to say that we're for regime change. Why is that? I think the the issue at at the core of this, I mean, it's easy, I think, to get sucked into the back and forth day-to-day tension between Iran and the United States and Iran and, and Saudi Arabia. But at the core of this is a much bigger political issue. The U.S. is concerned about a nuclear program. It's concerned about the Iranian missile program and the activities of the IRGC Quds Force. There was a political process in place that had led to a nuclear deal under President Obama uh, that the Trump administration backed away from and walked out of. European countries still are committed to this, as are the Russians and are the Chinese. So there is a broader political road that the U.S. could take to negotiate with the Iranians on a range of these issues that concern the U.S. Was this because of our withdrawing from that agreement? I wouldn't say it was necessarily just because of the U.S. withdrawing. I think it was at least partly a U.S. decision to withdraw from the nuclear deal. An increase in the sanctions, so that's a separate issue, although they are linked, and no political dialogue right now. So I think if you're looking at the situation from Tehran's standpoint, it has very few alternatives. Its economy has been decimated right now. There's no political dialogue. There's no hope. There's no light at the end of this tunnel. And I think that's why this issue is a big front and center. And I I think the the likelihood that the U.S. is going to get regime change in Iran is is close to zero. So this is why I think the U.S. needs needs to make it very clear this is not about regime change per se. This is about what the administration has largely said, missiles could force activities in the region and a nuclear program. Would another option for the United States to be to gather the world around this incident and say, we need to do something to, you know, A, stop Iran from these kinds of activities and B, bring them back into some form of dialogue. So going forward, we're all talking instead of having this kind of activity. Yeah, I think at the very least, Having the countries involved in the nuclear deal, the major European powers, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans involved in discussions with Iran on these issues would be a good place to start. I mean, it's worth noting that there's been a lot of tension building. Uh, We identified between July 2016 and July 2019, 250 attacks mostly coming from the Houthis in Yemen against Saudi critical infrastructure, including Ras Tanura, including the facilities at Abqaiq itself. So this is not coming out of nowhere. This is just much larger than what we've seen in the past. And I think this stuff will continue if there is not some progress on the political end. Yeah, meanwhile, today, Iran's supreme leader said that no Iranian official at any level will have any dialogue with any U.S official, unless they come back to the nuclear deal. So we're back to square one here, and it seems like we're at a standoff. Well, I think we are at a standoff. I think the question is, can the U.S. restart negotiations that at least includes the nuclear deal? And even if the U.S. makes some changes to the nuclear deal, uh, the U.S. may want to add additional elements to that, the missile program that Iran has and has just 
shown what it can do. The uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards, the, the uh, paramilitary arm of Iran that trains a range of the terrorist and militia groups in the region. Um, so I think at least coming back to the nuclear deal, letting the U.S. add other elements to discussions is the way forward here. Where do you see this going right now? I think the question is, how serious is the U.S. about negotiating right now? And does the U.S. want to go back to something that looks like the nuclear deal that the U.S. walked out of last year? The, the U.S. may be in a position with the National Security Advisor, uh, John Bolton, departing last week, probably among the most hawkish elements of the administration. There may be now some more room to negotiate. I, it's probably something that he was not supportive of in general. Do you think the Iranians' timing had anything to do with Bolton leaving? Uh Unclear right now. I mean, there are plenty of other hawks in the administration on Iran. Probably not, actually. Uh, I, I think they've had this capability. As I said earlier, there have been over 250 strikes against Saudi facilities in the past. So this has been going on for some time. So what will you be looking for? I mean, what do you think we ought to have our ears open to? And Well, I think the first thing is more information, particularly as the U.S. and the Saudis and potentially other partners, including the um, British, make intelligence public. Uh, who conducted the attacks? What were the projectiles that were used? Were they cruise missiles? Where were they shot from? So that's one, is to get a better sense of this. And the second is, how does the U.S. respond? Does it do it directly? Does it do it what we would call a proportional response, somewhat like what was just hit, or does the U.S. escalate? The U.S. conducts attacks against uh, Iranian infrastructure in Iran. That is almost certainly escalation, because now it's the U.S. going directly against the Iranians. Or does the U.S. Uh, let the Saudis respond because they were the ones targeted? So those are the two uh, most significant things that I would look at near term. The third issue is do we see uh, at least public discussions about a restart of negotiations with Iran? And I think that would get us out of this tit-for-tat environment we're in and, and actually put, a, put us on a path towards potentially resolving this. Do you think we have a cohesive set of policies in place in the United States right now towards Iran? Um, no, in the sense that the U.S. has communicated a range of steps, and the Secretary of State has done this, and the President's key Iran person has done this in the State Department, Brian Hook. Brian Hook. Uh, they have communicated a range of steps. I think a number of those steps the Iranians will never budge on. So I think the question is, can the U.S., a, communicate a list of steps that Iran actually may be willing to negotiate on. And second, can the U.S. get its major partners and allies involved in that? And this has been one of the biggest problems with the U.S. approach is its major allies in Europe are not on board with where the U.S. is. So the U.S. is operating largely on its own right now. And I think that is probably the single biggest challenge. Dr. Jones, thank you for bringing us the truth of the matter. I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 